Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, and we're continuing our series today celebrating our freedom in Christ with a message entitled Relationships in the Trinity. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I can't imagine any tenet of belief that is as hotly debated today as the roles of men and women. The debate ranges from careers to home life to sexuality, homosexuality, marriage, children being childless, I mean, on and on it goes. The debates are normally passionate. Accusations are easily made. Mistrust and defensiveness reign supreme. And for this reason, a great many preachers simply avoid the issue. I mean, I once saw a cartoon in which a senior pastor was dividing the preaching load between himself and a junior associate. He said to his associate, I'm going to preach on the love of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God, and you're going to preach on the roles of women, the challenge of feminism, and the duty to have children. That's a great plan. I mean, if you're in charge, that seems wise. I mean, let the young guy be the fall guy. But in truth, The first section of 1 Corinthians 11, if we're going to follow the Bible through verse by verse and chapter by chapter, well, it's got to be dealt with. And since that back to the Bible, we simply can't throw any Bible text into the trash heap of history. We're obligated by God who gave us the Bible to teach this as well. Now, there are 15 contentious verses here, and I'm going to break it down into three addresses, not to belabor the point, but because some of what we read is a bit complex and it really does require an explanation. And so we notice that the first section, verses two and three, has a lot to do with the nature of the Trinity and the relationship between the Father and the Son. Because this passage has sometimes been misused by those who deny the Trinity, and because this passage sets the foundation for what follows, I've decided to take one address today and deal with this one thing. The second section has to do with head coverings, and it might surprise some of my listeners to know that in the world today, a great many Christians insist that women who attend worship services must cover their heads, and yet in the West, we don't have this rule at all. So we do well to understand why that is and what that might mean for us today. And finally, I will use one address to speak about the biblical command that wives should submit to their husbands. You know, this one needs one session because of several factors. I mean, one's abuse, whether domestic abuse in homes or longstanding systemic abuse of women. And we simply can't ignore this felt reality. Another is the issue of feminism, which, if I understand the term rightly, is the belief that there are no role differences between men and women. A third issue has to do with careers and accomplishments and women's role in society today. And so, If you promise not to prejudge the text we're reading, and if you let it speak for itself without bringing our agenda into it, but rather let it bring its agenda into our world, I, I think we might be surprised by what we find. And in the end, I wish to remind you, I didn't write this text, but I am called upon as best as I'm able to communicate what it says and what that means for us. So let's begin by reading the first two verses in our text, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 3. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now before we dive right in, let's read the verse prior to that. 
1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now that verse rightly belongs to the previous section which discussed whether or not Christians should eat food offered to idols. And in that section, Paul's not afraid to hold himself forward as an example of a man who's following the example of Christ. But now he moves to a new topic, and in so doing, he does so as a man who's worthy of being emulated. After all, he's an apostle, but he's also a man who lives faithfully to Jesus. He himself lives under the authority of Christ, and so on that basis, he's making the case that all of life as a believer is lived under authority. Even though Christians have freedom, they do not have freedom from all authority. And so the reality is today, we as Christians live under the authority of Scripture. We have freedom from the world, the flesh, and the devil, but we are slaves of Christ. Now, when it comes to verses 2 and 3, you should immediately see why those two verses demand an entire broadcast. You know, someone will say, and I can see why those people who deny the Trinity might want to use those two verses to make their case. So let's give ourselves to setting the issue of head coverings and submission aside for just a while and do more than understand these two verses. What kind of relationship does the Father have with the Son? So Paul begins for the first time by commending the Corinthians. He did not commend them when it came to their lack of unity or about their unwillingness to excommunicate an immoral brother, but here he has something positive to say. They are remembering him in everything, and as a result, they are maintaining the traditions that he has delivered to them. So clearly, there were some traditions that Paul had insisted upon, traditions the Corinthians were in fact observing. Now, if you're like a great many people in our culture, the word tradition seems overwhelmingly negative. You might think of the traditional church, which conjures up music of another generation and a style of worship that may have been derived from the 1950s, seems no longer relevant today. I mean, further, you might also think the way Jesus once used this word. In Matthew 15, verse 3, he asks the Pharisees, why do you break the command of God for the sake of tradition? And indeed, that might be how you think of the word tradition. When you hear tradition, you think of human-based ways of doing things that are at odds with what God wants. And in the case of the Pharisees, that's exactly what was going on. But the actual word tradition means that which is passed along from one person to another, from one generation to another by way of teaching. You know, in the New Testament, tradition is viewed very negatively when it refers to man-made or man-originated tradition. But the term is positive when it refers to God-made or God-originated tradition. That is, the traditions of inspired scripture, the revealed word of God, the Bible. Now, a tradition often relates to a practice or a lifestyle. For instance, it's entirely accurate to say that it's a tradition among Christian people that they not engage in sexual relations except after marriage. It is handed down as a way of life from one generation to another. But the source of that tradition comes from God himself. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I'm so proud of you that in some matters, you're living exactly the way that I taught you to live. You're imitating my way of life, even as I imitate Christ, and that has something to do with the traditions that I've taught you. And then having established that, he adds the word, but. But I want you to understand. Now, as we're going to see, what he wants to understand is the theological basis for the tradition. And here we see the dangers of tradition. 
I mean, how easy it is for one generation to follow what another generation does without asking, why is it that we do things this way? Empty traditions are traditions that are not explained. I mean, think of my example. Why do we tell young people not to engage in sexual relations until after they're married? Now, if the answer is, well, that's the way we've always done it, what we've done then is we've emptied a holy tradition of its content. Now, once we do that, we set the stage for people walking away from God. But I want you to understand why we insist on a certain kind of relationship between husbands and wives, Paul says. Why does the man and the wife relate to each other in the way that they do? I know you're doing the traditions, he says, but I want you to understand why we do the traditions. Without understanding, we all perish. And so what is it that Paul wants them to understand? Well, he tells them, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And now here again, we see some kind of a formula that some people think smacks of hierarchical abuse in marriage and at the same time seems to be contradictory to the doctrine of the Trinity. How can the Father be the head of Christ? Aren't both of them co-equal from all of eternity? And that's why today we're getting at the issue of the Trinity. Sometimes non-Trinitarian false teachers will appeal to this very verse, and this is precisely the reason why I think it's necessary to spend as much time as we need to understand this one verse so that we don't have empty traditions and we don't have heretical views of the nature of God, and we bring the nature of God and the relationships within the Trinity into all the other relationships that we have and that we construct traditions on the way in which we actually have relations with one another. Have you been considering joining us for the 2021 Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience? Well, after much consideration and prayer, the ministry has decided that we'll be postponing our next Israel experience to 2022. You'll understand why with so much uncertainty in our world right now. The exciting news is that those who have been nervous or reluctant to jump on board have a new window of opportunity. Join us in Israel April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, and consider adding to your experience our extension to Jordan May 2nd to May 7th, 2022. This will definitely be a journey of a lifetime. Register soon because even though the date is a little ways away, the space is limited. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Okay, let's establish what God, the creator of male and female, teaches us the divine tradition of what it means to be male and female. Are you ready? I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, I want you to look at the word head, for the entire argument hangs on that word. In recent years, some have argued that the word head means source, like the head of a river, which is its source. So then from that vantage point, all that this passage is teaching is that the man was created first 
and is the source of the woman's creation, and that Jesus in his incarnation came from the source, which is the Father. You know, as interesting as that might seem, it actually fails for at least three reasons. I mean, first of all, that translation of head as source is suspicious because in 2,000 years of interpreting this text, it has never been understood in that way until the present. And secondly, in every other place where Paul uses the term head, he means authority and never source. So, for instance, Christ is called the head of the church, and then the church, therefore, is called to submit to the head. In Ephesians 5, where it says the husband is the head of the wife, it therefore teaches that wives should then submit to their husbands. So whenever the word head comes up, it always leads to a relationship of submission. And thirdly, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in every place where the word head is used in translation, it means either one's physical head or one's authority. It never means source. Or there really is no reason at all to imagine that the word head means anything but the leader or the director. So what's the head? It's the ruling part of your body which directs the course of your body. Head, therefore, means authority. But wait a minute. Now, how can we say that when in verse 3, the head of Christ is God? See, we know from John chapter 1, the complete unity between the Father and the Son, teaching that the Father and the Son are equal from all eternity. It says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus taught the very same thing. In John 10 verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Or listen to the words of John 5 verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And several verses later in the same chapter, listen to these words. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, listen now, just as they honor the Father. John 5, to 23. So how do we honor the Father? We honor him as the one and only God who is infinitely glorious, is perfect in all his virtues, and who is worthy of our worship, our trust, and our obedience. And on the basis of that, then, how should we honor the Son? Well, we should honor him in the same way, as the one and only God who is infinitely glorious, is perfect in all his virtues, and who is worthy of all our worship, trust, and obedience. In other words, the Son is absolutely equal to the Father. That's what the Bible teaches. That's why Peter in 2 Peter 1 verse 1 calls the Son our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully God, even as the Father is fully God. We worship one God who forever exists in three distinct persons, and the three persons who are the one God are co-equal from all eternity. So then what do we make of verse 3 that the head of Christ is God, meaning God the Father? How can the Father have authority over the Son who is equal to him in everything? And that, my friends, is the perplexing question, and it's a question we must not overlook. You know, something of the nature of God must exist in this short passage. Now, Paul himself answers our questions beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 7. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Translation, the fully equal son, 
for the sake of winning men and women to God, humbled himself and became a servant, fully submitting himself to the will of his Father. And consider the evidence. In John 5, 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Again, let's see if we can restate that in our own words. Jesus said this, I never do a single thing without being fully directed by my Father in heaven. He gives me direction, and I then act in full compliance and in submission to him. Or think of another example of the same principle. Jesus is in the garden just a brief time before he's arrested, tried, mocked, tortured, and then crucified. And there as he prays in the garden, a cup is presented to him. You know, I wish I had time to show that the cup is a symbol found repeatedly in the Old Testament prophets. The cup is the cup of wrath in which the wrath of the Father will be poured out onto the Son who will then become our sin substitute. And as the cup is presented to the Son, we find the Son deep in prayer to the Father. I'm reading Matthew 26, verse 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, we should not attempt it. Our reading of this night of passion, this Gethsemane, this, this place of the olive press where olives are crushed to produce fine oil, that in this place, God the Father revealed to God the Son that he had come to crush him and allow him to be the substitute for the sins of the world. I mean, the horror of drinking such a cup made Christ's flesh recoil with revulsion. The act of drinking such an awful cup, and so hear this prayer as it was prayed. It comes as a sincere request to his Father. Father, he prays, let this cup pass from me. You know, for every believer, this is indeed a point of identification with Christ when we are called by the Father to walk through the valley of suffering and with agonized voices, we cry out to the Father, remove the cup of suffering from us. But here also is where, quite frankly, none of us have experienced fully what Christ did on that night. As the blood vessels in his forehead were rupturing under the intense emotional strain of that moment, when a weight far greater than we can imagine was laid upon him, he also cried out, Nevertheless, in spite of the utter horror of this moment, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus accepted that the Father was head over him, and because of that, he submitted to him. And you and I should consider that as our example. So from this, from both the biblical statements that the Father and the Son are co-equal from all eternity, and from the clear statements of the submission of the Son to the Father, let me make two extremely important statements. Of these two things, both are essential to the Christian faith. Here now is the first of them. To teach that the Son is subordinate to the Father by nature is heresy. Hope you heard that. The Son is in no way subordinate to the Father in his essential nature. The Father and the Son are one. All must honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The Son has equal splendor and glory to the Father. No, no. The Son is not subordinate to the Father by nature in any way at all. Now, you ready for the second statement? It's equally important. To teach that the Son is subordinate to the Father by virtue of his mission, that's orthodoxy. That is, the Son, as the Father's equal, willingly submitted himself to the Father. 
So the father is head or authority over the son as the son willingly submits himself to the father to the point of suffering on the cross for our sins. Now, from my vantage point, that puts a whole new spin on my own fierce pride. I mean, how often have you or have I, in our arrogance, refused to submit ourselves to the father? We who are infinitely inferior to both the father and the son, how is it? that we in arrogance should ever say, not your will but mine be done. Oh God, have mercy on us, for we are sinners. And this example of the Son submitting himself to the Father has done something to all true believers. You see, in our faith, submission is not a swear word, nor does it raise hackles. You know, when Paul wrote, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, clearly what the Corinthian church saw in him was a life willingly submitted to the Father and to the Son, and more so. When the Corinthian church was to submit to his apostolic authority, you know, this is not a statement that the believers in Corinth were in any fashion inferior to the apostle Paul. They were in every way his full equal. But they had, by the will of the Father, a complementary role to play in the outworking of their faith. He, the apostle, and they, the children that are born to him in faith. What we need then is to try to incorporate the example of the Father and the Son in all human relationship in a way that reflects not the standards of this world, but the standards that God has set for us. John, your message today leads me to this question, I guess. You know, submission is not an easy thing. It almost seems against our, our human nature almost, and it engenders sort of this discomfort. Why is that? Yeah, I know that it does. It is a Christian virtue. I mean, Christ submitted himself to his Father. Um, you know, we have the husband and wife uh, submissive relationship. Then we have, you know, submit to your elders, uh, slaves submit to your masters. We have all sorts of examples of it so that the Christian virtue of submission is not like a doormat. And I think some of us may have difficulty because we think of the person who's submitting is the inferior. And because of that, and because our culture kind of plays on that, you know, we need to stand up for our rights, uh, we think that submission is different than standing up for our rights. But I think what we need to do is plumb the depths of the biblical usage of the word and allow ourselves to be informed by what the Bible tells us submission looks like. And it will look different than our culture tells us to do. And, and that's why I've taken the time to talk about the relationship that Christ has with his Father. The submission of the Son to the Father is not that the Son becomes lesser, but he's exalted, in fact. Well, there's a great word. Thanks so much, John, for today's message. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you and the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter and the study of God's word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. 
More information is on its way, so keep an eye on backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We're looking forward to meeting you there.